Are you tired of a religious life that only begins and ends on that one day in the week? Do you yearn to live out a Christian life Monday to Sunday as God had originally intended? Do you want to experience all things new? Keep listening. My name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Every month, I review a book from Faith Life's free book of the month. And for the month of June, that free book is All Things New, Joining God's Story of Recreation by Pete Hughes. If you search for the title All Things New in Amazon, you may be surprised to see many other books titled All Things New. All Things New, Rethinking Sin, Salvation and Everything in Between by Fiona and Terrell Givens. All Things New, Bible Study Book, a study on 2 Corinthians by Kelly Minter. All Things New, Heaven, Earth and the Restoration of Everything You Love by John Eldredge. All Things New, Revelation as Canonical Capstone by Brian J. Tapp. Making All Things New, Restoring Joy to the Sexually Broken by David Pollison. Making All Things New, An Invitation to the Spiritual Life by Henri Newman. And there are more. One reason for mentioning all those titles is to make sure you get the right book. Another reason is to show that the phrase all things new can mean many things to many people. And for Pete Hughes, all things new is about recreation. In the beginning, there was creation. Because of Adam, we have the creation, also known as the fall. Because of Jesus, we have Recreation, as in we recreate, restore, renew what was originally intended. So, creation, decreation, and recreation are the three points that make a V shape. As Christians, we are agents of recreation. When we know who God is and what God is doing, we know who we are and what we are to do. Now, he could say all those uh, about us being agents of recreation and write this book based on uh, passages like Be the Light of the World, Salt of the Earth, or other similar passages. Instead, what Hughes does is he argues from the grand narrative, the big story of the Bible. To recreate, we must look to what was in the beginning. And that begins the first of six parts in the book, where each part is three to four chapters long. He has fancier titles, but I summarize it like this. The first part is creation. Second, Israel. Third, Jesus, his incarnation and ministry. Fourth, Jesus, his death and resurrection. Fifth, the church. Sixth, heaven and hell. The six parts of this book roll out a vision of what recreation is. But this book is not a sermon series or a classroom lesson on the grand narrative of scripture. We are getting a kitchen table with your new best friend. <laughs> he tells you how he and his wife B met. It's a really funny story. He shares the traumatic events uh, when his first child was born, the excitement of starting King's Cross Church, and more. And an entertaining storyteller, you will enjoy a reading of his fears, doubts, hopes, and joys of his church, family, and life. And like any good teacher, he lands the story to a point he wants to make. For example, in telling how he and his wife met, he shows how their children are curious on the origins of their family. 
In the same way, we too want to know the origin of our family of faith and thus to know Israel. And that's how the chapter on Israel begins. He doesn't have a preachy tone. Okay, so he has a very young, I don't know all the answers, I'm trying to figure things out just like you are, but let's walk through life together. This um, probably appeals to young millennials and the unchurched who are suspicious of authority figures. Many churches struggle to attract this group, but King's Cross Church does it very well. And maybe it's the tone and also Hugh's understanding of this difficult-to-reach group. According to Hughes, millennials are increasing, I quote, millennials are increasingly dissatisfied, though, with a spirituality that doesn't really work from Monday to Friday. But if the end goal is the renewal of all things, then our careers are incredibly important. As followers of Jesus, we are tasked to be agents of renewal to every sector of society. We partner with Christ in the renewal of politics, education, business, entertainment, and the arts. The full glory of that renewal awaits Jesus' return, but every endeavor in line with this vision now will last for eternity. End quote. Hughes says that the problem is we offer a truncated, shortened, reduced story. He writes, I quote, the danger of a truncated story is that it leads to a truncated understanding of mission. A more holistic understanding of mission still emphasizes the need to proclaim the message of the cross and call people to repentance, whilst equally emphasizing the church's role to alleviate the poverty and suffering that rob people of life, to steward the creation we have been entrusted to look after, and to work towards the renewal of the culture we are embedded within." End quote. Now, these are all good reminders, and Christians all around can get behind the broad strokes of his argument. Perhaps mm, the difference is in how we get there. How do we steward creation? How do we do renewal in politics? Is uh, Hughes calling for environmental activism, political activism? What is he saying? He writes, I quote, If there is a strategy for cultural renewal, community transformation, and kingdom ministry present in the Gospels and Book of Acts, it would have two solid foundations. Become more like Jesus and follow the leading of the Spirit. Everything else is built on this. End quote. Now, can any Christian disagree with becoming more like Jesus or to follow the leading of the Spirit? It all sounds very good. Throughout the book, he builds up this anticipation. In this grand narrative, he explains what it means to be human, how idolatry led to decreation. Chapter by chapter, we read of Israel and Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. In Jesus, we have at long last recreation. Because of him, we are agents of renewal. Now, how does this look like? How does this agent of the renewal thing look like? And then it comes. The chapter is titled, Disciples Shaped by the Story of God. In this chapter, Hughes tells us how the churches have got it wrong. It's not knowing stuff about Jesus. It's not being good. It's not doing good. It's so much more. So come on, Hughes, tell me. Tell me what is this more that, um, about these agents of renewal. And then he writes, 
I quote, if we are to follow the way of Jesus, who fulfills the whole narrative of Scripture through his life, death, and resurrection, then the shape of his life must inevitably become the shape of our lives. End quote. Did you get that? The big story of the Bible, creation, decreation, and recreation, corresponds to the big story of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. If we are to follow Jesus, and to follow the big story of the Bible, then the big story of Jesus must shape our lives. The big story of Jesus is his life, death, and resurrection. And these three points are the V-shape, the V-shape of creation, decreation, and recreation. Moving downward from creation to decreation, in his book, he writes, is incarnation. Okay, In the incarnation, Jesus was compassionate. Exodus 34, 6-7, God is compassionate. Matthew 9, Matthew 14, Jesus had compassion. Colossians 3, 12, we must clothe ourselves with compassion. Therefore, we need to be compassionate disciples. The second point is decreation. Here we have the cross. Jesus was courageous. Romans 1, 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Matthew 16.24, whoever follows me must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Therefore, from these passages, it's clear we are to be courageous disciples. Moving from decreation to recreation, okay, moving upward, is the resurrection the creme de la creme of the book, or at least it should be. After all, Hughes' thesis has built up to this point. All creation is moving towards recreation and we must let the resurrection of Jesus shape us. He writes, Filled with resurrection hope and the spirit of God's new creation, we begin to creatively engage with the surrounding culture and partner in God's mission to make all things new. He quotes Picasso, We are all born as artists. The challenge is to remain an artist. He quotes Ken Robinson, We are educating people out of creativity. He quotes, No scripture in support. The earlier sections was longer and easily traceable to the Bible passages. Not so when it comes to the decreation to recreation part. The, the, I would say, I would argue the main thesis of the book. We, he says that we need to be compassionate like Christ, courageous like Christ, but does it really say we are to be creative like Christ or that Christ calls us to be creative? He writes, As we freely receive his restoration, we might more freely give and therefore journey towards the kind of creativity that renews culture. This calling is both our history and our destiny. It was the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve to establish culture and extend it throughout the earth. It is also our recreation mandate to redeem culture and extend God's redemption throughout the earth. Creativity is a non-negotiable for such a task. End quote. All right, I get the recreation mandate. I think that was done very well. I just don't see creativity as the non-negotiable part. Uh, basically, Hughes just asserts it. He doesn't prove it. We could just as easily assert perseverance is non-negotiable or obedience is non-negotiable. 
or faith is non-negotiable. And they are all true. But to say that the big lesson from the resurrection is we are to be creative uh, based on scanty evidence is honestly a big letdown. And so we come to my criticism of all things new. He asserts uh, various new ideas or claims, but doesn't always support them. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. In the foreword to this book, Pete Gregg writes, This book brought me to the brink of apostasy (laughs) several times before reassuring me that, in fact, its message is orthodox to the very core, end quote. Now, Greg mentions apostasy to show how edgy this book is, dangerous. And he is right. I was brought to the brink of apostasy several times. Unlike Greg, I was not so reassured. I give you three examples. According to Hughes, number one, we are God's living statues. Number two, Solomon was an oppressive slave master. And number three, Jesus was a revolutionary. Now, according to Hughes, other religions have temples, and in those temples, they have statues or idols. But Yahweh does not have statues in his temple because we are his living statues. He writes, God has made each of us to be his living statues in the world. The man-made replicas are an offense. They have no life in them. They can't love their maker and enter into relationship with him. But we can. As God's living statues, we are created to be God's real presence in the world, filling the earth with the glory and presence of God. End quote. So that sounds good because you have uh, by God, for God, uh, to God, so it looks good. But when I read this, I immediately thought of Romans 1 on idolatry. And to my delight and surprise, uh, in the next chapter, he quotes Romans 1 and describes and condemns idolatry. At this point, I know I'm supposed to be reassured that his living statue's idea is orthodox because he condemns idolatry, isn't it? But call me old-fashioned, but I don't see any benefit to speak of us as living statues. In the Bible, statues are always bad. The statue of Nebuchadnezzar, the statue of the golden calf. And yes, you can argue that the Hebrew word for statue, uh, Salem, is the same word used for image of God. But it's more straightforward to see that God does not have a statue in his temple because God directs us to worship the Creator and not created things. So the empty temple is not because we fill up that gap, but because we don't want to worship something instead of God. So introducing the idea of living statues, I suggest and I propose that it can distract us from that simple and straightforward teaching. Uh, To me, all right, to me, to use statues to describe the image of God It's like using prostitution to describe marriage. Now, if people only understand prostitution, then we are forced to describe marriage in those terms. But as I suggest, we can understand the image of God without looking at ourselves as living statues because statues is too closely related to idolatry. Next, Did you know that Solomon was an oppressive slave master? No, you don't say. He writes, 
The same people rescued from forced labor in Egypt enslaved others to build a temple for their God. The irony is tragic. The people of God became so blind that they couldn't spot the problem of using slaves to build a temple for the God who liberates slaves. End quote. Now, in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, it states that the king must not acquire a great number of horses for himself, which Solomon violated. In 1 Kings 11.4, it states that Solomon's wives turned his heart after other gods. Thus, Solomon violated the main commandment from God. And Hughes does quote these passages as evidence of Solomon's decreation or fall. And so I am supposed to be reassured of his orthodoxy, but I'm not. I think when he says that Solomon is an oppressive slave master, he is using a modern-day lens. Um, today, people can be drafted to fight national wars. Uh, maybe 100 years or 500 years in the future, that would be barbaric. But in ancient times, people were drafted to build national buildings. Was there another way? I don't know. Perhaps a historian can tell us. But I don't think the Bible condemns how Solomon built the temple. I could be wrong, but Hughes does need to give more evidence to prove his case. Because, um, you see, God denied David's request to build a temple because David shed blood. So God can stop people from building the temple. And before the horses and chariots, before the wives and concubines, Solomon built the temple to God's explicit approval. God's presence, the Shekinah glory, manifested in that temple. And in 1 Kings 9, after the dedication of the temple, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time to affirm that God heard Solomon's prayers and that God is faithful to his covenant to David. And the Bible has many other passages in the Old Testament about slavery, which is not which he, nobody actually has a time to address in, in, when, in this book. Okay, I can't address it in this review. I can't address, he can't address it in the book. So the idea that Solomon was an oppressive slave master, is, uh, it needs more evidence. And uh, he needs to deal with the counter-arguments to better make the case. Because I think it's uh, not a simple one to make. Next. Did you know that Jesus was a revolutionary? <laughs> uh, he writes, So why did Jesus die? There are two questions involved here. The historical question, why did the Romans kill him? And the theological question, what did his death accomplish? He later continues, Whatever theological answer we provide, it has to be consistent with the historical answer that Jesus died as a revolutionary inaugurating a new kingdom. End quote. So, did the Romans crucify Jesus because he, was, he really was a revolutionary? Do we ignore the fact that Jesus rejected the crowd who wanted to make him their revolutionary leader? Uh, ignore the fact that the Jewish leaders wanted him dead for any reason they could find. Ignore the fact that the judge, Pilate, did not believe Jesus to be a revolutionary and literally washed his hands. <laughs> ignore the fact that Jesus himself said in his defense that my kingdom is not of this world. To me, it's as clear as day that Jesus was not leading a revolt against Rome or the social order of the day. A revolt against sin, against death, against Satan, yes. But that would be the theological answer, not the historical answer. 
According to Hughes, our theological understanding of Jesus should be consistent with the historical answer. And I'm supposed to be reassured because he doesn't dismiss the theological answer. He merely enriches our understanding, enriching it by looking at the historical answer. But that understanding is wrong. He says the Romans killed Jesus on the charge that he was a revolutionary, therefore Jesus must be one. But if the Romans had killed Jesus because he was a pirate or a thief, should we consider the historical answer even if the charges were false? By calling Jesus a revolutionary, it just makes it easier to make Christians social revolutionaries. But that's not what Hughes is calling for, is he? So he brings us to that brink of apostasy and doesn't reassure us enough that he has not gone past that brink. So to uh, summarize what we just looked at just now, uh, Hughes has brought me to that brink by, without reassuring me by saying that we are living statues. Am I committing idolatry when I think of myself that way? Solomon was an oppressive slave master, but God so clearly approved of Solomon's temple. Does that mean God approves of oppression? Jesus was a revolutionary. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Does that make Paul a revolutionary? Am I supposed to be one? Now, I know he doesn't have time okay, to elaborate on these ideas because remember, his big idea is the grand narrative that shows creation, decreation, and recreation and how we are agents of renewal. But isn't he aware that these things he mentions are explosive? At the very least, he should include some footnotes. And you say, Terence, Terence, footnotes, he is a foot soldier, not a scholar or theologian. He is in the front line reaching out to the lost. He can't give you footnotes. And I beg to differ. Hughes has uh, in this book a chapter titled Rethinking Hell, Throwing the Serpent Out of the Garden City. And here he argues for annihilation, mm, annihilationism. Okay? Okay. Uh, don't know whether I pronounced that rightly. He claims that according to the Bible, believers will enjoy eternal life in heaven, but non-believers will not have eternal torment in hell, contrary to popular belief. Instead, they will be annihilated. They will die and no longer exist. Now, Hughes knows that this is controversial, so he presents Bible passage after Bible passage. He cites books. He addresses the possible counter-arguments, and he includes footnotes. Now, I'm not convinced, but I like the groundwork. I appreciate the, his argument that uh, non-believers are annihilated. Okay, I, I appreciate the argument, even though I disagree with the doctrine and his conclusions. So who should read this book? Now, there is this genre called business biographies, where the book tells the origin story of Subway, IBM, Google, and so on. You could think of this book as a biography of Pete Hughes and King's Cross Church, their journey set in the narrative of Scripture. If you attend or want to attend King's Cross Church, this book will tell you much about the pastor's personality, life, and theology, and how the church began and where it's going. But if you're looking for a big idea book, the book title says more than, in, than it intended to say. The title is All Things New, 
I thought it merely meant the restoration of God's original purpose, the pristine original purpose of Eden towards new earth. I didn't know I was getting in this book a new way of looking at ourselves, a new way of looking at Solomon, a new way of looking at Jesus, sin, hell, a new word to describe the fall, decreation, a new word to describe renewal, recreation, a new outline to the book of Matthew, a new this, a new that. Now, not saying new that, meaning that Hughes originated or created these new ideas. I'm not saying new in that sense. I'm saying new in the sense that the average Christian may not have heard of these ideas before. So when he brings all these new things to you, the Bible seems fresh, exciting, new insights. You are sitting at Hugh's kitchen table and he is telling you all these things and you go, wow, I never knew that. I never read it that way. But new or old doesn't mean right or wrong. And just because it's new, uh, and because it's new, it requires more evidence to persuade us away from the old understanding. Evidence which I have explained, he sometimes gives and sometimes doesn't. So how should we read it? I suggest we read it the way he wants us to take it. The places he goes light, we go light. The places he goes heavy, we go heavy. It's like a brainstorming session. Ideas get thrown out and not all ideas make sense or are valid. But the ones which stick get fleshed out more. Take him as he wants us to take him. Don't see him as an authority figure. I don't mean any disrespect, but I think that's how he likes it. He doesn't have all the answers, it's a journey, these ideas resonated with him and he is sharing them. He may not have put them together properly, but he is sharing what he has. I think if we take him and his book at that level, then this book will not sink from our expectations. The irony is the big idea he has. The big idea that the Christian life does not start with sin and end with atonement, that there is the wider narrative of creation, fall, redemption and renewal, and which is necessary uh, to understand for the full Christian life, and that we must, must live out that life. That big idea, it's not new. If you want to understand the image of God in uh, the big story of Scripture, I recommend you read Created in God's Image by Anthony A. Hokema. Uh, Hokema. He explains us as the image of God uh, in four parts. He explains the original image, the perverted image, the renewed image, and the perfected image. You will not look at yourself in the mirror the same way. If you want to go beyond the man and look at society and culture, I like Center Church by Tim Keller. I read the three-volume version, which is 886 pages long in total. And uh, All Things New is 336 pages. <laughs> but let me read from, uh, from Keller. When the institutional church gives attention to cultural engagement, the fourth and final ministry fund, it does so primarily by discipling a community of believers who work as the church organic, by teaching the Christian doctrine of vocation, the goodness of creation, the importance of culture, and the practice of Sabbath. It should be inspiring and encouraging its members to go into the various channels of culture. It equips its members, it equips its filmmaker members, for example, to be distinctly Christian in their art and work through solid Christian instruction, end quote. And uh, in this book by Keller, I appreciate the survey he did on how the different schools of thought have grappled with how the church relates with, 
or sometimes fight against culture. It was also Keller who introduced me to Abraham Kuyper. Pro-Reg, Reg uh, spelled R-E-G-E, uh, is written by Abraham Kuyper, and it's not for the faint of heart. There are three volumes, 500 pages each, and... Uh, do you remember that in All Things New, Hughes wants to see agents of recreation in every sector of society, politics, education, business, entertainment, and the arts? Kuiper says, I quote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Uh, that's a nice quote. So if you read Keller and Kuiper, you will get the big idea of cultural renewal set on very firm foundations. Uh, nearly a thousand pages for Keller and the other is a thousand and five hundred pages. And yes, I know these are very long books and not many people are willing or able to read, uh, commit that time to read. Which is why I was hoping okay, that uh, All Things New would say the same things in a shorter book to reach a wider audience. He tries to do it, but in my opinion, the main message is lost in the newness of many other things. In conclusion, All Things New is against a truncated narrative of Scripture and a truncated mission of the Church. The Christian life does not start with sin and end with atonement. It is wider. It is more. His stories and new ideas, which stretches from creation to heaven, will excite readers. The setup is good, but the payoff was flat. It's not convincing that the big recreation message, the big Jesus story in the resurrection, is that disciples are to be creative. If he wants to make that case, he needs to write another book. Maybe the title can be uh, Recreation, the Creative Spark of Life, or something like that, in order to make that argument in full. In All Things New, Hughes says so many new things that has forced me to stop and think, which is a good thing. I suggest every reader to weigh what he says and not just blindly accept them. I'm sure he agrees. I appreciate his zeal for God and reaching out to the lost and sharing his ideas with a wider audience, although I hope he will rethink some of what he wrote, some of the ideas. Not all that glitters is gold and not all that is new is true. This is a reading and reader's review of all things new. Joining God's Story of Recreation by Pete Hughes And now let me try saying something new Instead of ending the podcast by asking you to review or share or rate the, uh, the podcast I just want to say thank you Thank you for listening to this 10th episode And especially a thank you to Esther from Boston Esther was kind enough to buy me coffee if you visit the site, there's a, the website, there's a button. You click on it and you put in some amount and the amount gets to me. The idea is that uh, after listening to the podcast, you show your appreciation by buying me coffee, treating me to a cup of coffee. Esther mentioned that the reviews has helped her uh, make a decision to buy two books. So that's great. I, I, I was happy to hear that. Now, if you want to know more about the podcast or to see more, uh, uh, to listen to other uh, earlier uh, episodes, uh, visit www.readingandreaders.com. That's www.readingandreaders.com. Thank you, Esther, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a blessed day. <laughs>